Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Joey Calvez. I want to tell you guys a little bit about the Department of Metahuman Affairs. This one is a story about a team led by a retired sidekick, two felons, a failed actor from Broadway, and a reprogrammed cyborg. But their first mission is to stop the criminals who have robbed a bank, and they will have to set the world at ease. You're going to get 180 pages of entertainment action-packed awesomeness right here in the first six issues in a collected hardcover volume one all you got to do is head on over to kickstarter.com and type in the department of metahuman affairs or dma and check it out right now Sorry for the long delay, and thanks for joining me tonight. I wanted to just let you guys know that I'm now part of the Age of Radio podcast network, and if you look in the show notes, you'll see a link to my page there. Click that link, scan to the bottom, and you'll see that there's a great promotion I'm doing with Blue Apron, where you can get $30 off your first order. So click that, give it a shot if you'd like, you'll get tasty food, and you'll be supporting this podcast, so it's a win-win. Now, before we get back into the Kirby Anthony story, I am just wanted to tell you about a weird case that happened here recently, and also just some basic current crime events, so if you're not interested in that, just skip forward a few minutes, but if you are interested, here we go. I wanted to tell you guys about a strange local case that happened recently. On June 30th, 23-year-old Tatiana Ayanashku was seen crashing her vehicle into a parked car in the small community of Delta Junction, southeast of Fairbanks. When the homeowner came out after presumably hearing the crash, the young woman took off her shoes and ran away into the woods, leaving behind all of her belongings. I don't know about you, but when I heard this story, it immediately reminded me of the Maura Murray disappearance. Luckily, this case has a happy ending. A search effort was launched in the area, but no sign of her was found, and there would be no answers for several days. In the early morning hours of July 5th, the Smith family was camping next to the Gerstle River and shooting fireworks when a young woman came out of nowhere and asked to use their phone. They were concerned since she appeared to be alone and have no belongings, and it was three in the morning. And they asked her if she was possibly the young woman that had gone missing, and she told them her name was Tatiana, and they confirmed that she was the one that had been considered to be missing and had been all over the news. She was in a state of mild hypothermia, and so the family gave her warm clothing and food and then drove her home. She would recount her story of the events of the past week when she'd been missing. She said she'd accidentally driven into a car on the side of the road. She wasn't under the influence of drugs or alcohol, but had been very tired. Allegedly, after this happened, the vehicle owner emerged from the house and was very angry and threatening and tried to push his way into her car. She said her fight-or-flight instincts kicked in, and for some reason she abandoned her shoes before running away from him. She said she was in shock and found herself out lost in the woods and extremely cold. 
She found an abandoned house that had blankets she wrapped herself in and got some sleep. She decided to try to hike and find help, and after a week, stumbled upon the camping family. She also said that she didn't realize that a week had passed while she was lost in the woods. It's a strange story, and at this time, there doesn't appear to be any comment on the case from local law enforcement or the homeowner. It's a developing story, and I'm interested to see what shakes out, and I'll share it with you as things develop. I also wanted to talk about the insane escalation of crime in Anchorage in the last few years. It's funny that what the year I started the podcast, 2017, was kind of when it started to really ratchet up, but I promise that I'm not doing any sort of nightcrawler thing where I'm setting up these crimes so I can have something to talk about. It is interesting, though. So I just saw an article discussing the stats in Anchorage for 2017. Overall for the year, there was $45 million worth of personal property stolen in just Anchorage. And that number is greatly attributed to the amount of car thefts, which was 3,100. This number is double what it was in 2016 and nearly triple what it was in 2015. And it's around three and a half times 2014's number, so it's gotten crazy. And while 2017 was off the charts, 2018 is already proving to be even worse. In a month-by-month comparison for the first five months of the year, the number of monthly car thefts rose by double-digit percentages every single month. In January alone, 400 cars were stolen, which was a 36% increase over 2017. And in April, there was a whopping 76% increase over April 2017, with 350 thefts versus 200 last year. So it's gotten pretty crazy here and kind of scary. I know that I personally don't feel safe in my neighborhood like I used to. And there has been a lot of uh, cop activity just on my street, probably about five or six times in the last year and a half or so. And keep in mind, all of these statistics are happening in a city of pretty much exactly 300,000 people. Just a few days ago, there were two murders within a few hours of each other that were totally unrelated. And it seems like there's constant SWAT activity somewhere in town. It's getting real here. And the escalation has been caused by a wide variety of intertwining reasons. There are arguments over what factor is most influential. Many, including law enforcement, cite Senate Bill 91 as being a major driving force in the crime. This bill was put into action in 2016 and was partially created to reduce overcrowding in local jails and prisons. During the first year of this bill passing, Department of Corrections stated there were around 400 less inmates in local prisons and jails per day. There's also been a change in which more low-level criminals are being sent to halfway houses instead of jail. It also allows certain offenders to now post bail prior to trial who previously would not have had that option. Overall, people committing crimes that are considered to be nonviolent and first-time offenders 
often receive little to no jail time. Local law enforcement has stated that many offenders have actually mentioned this fact as one of the reasons they were more likely to commit these types of crimes because they didn't have to worry about serious legal ramifications. Another huge factor in our local spike in crime is drugs. Drugs of all kinds, but primarily meth and heroin, both of which are obviously expensive and which cause regular users to have to steal property, try to get as much money as they can every single day to avoid the withdrawal symptoms. This also ties into SB 91, because Alaska law enforcement states that they have come across many drug offenders from out of state who moved to Alaska after the passage of SB 91, knowing that possession of drugs like heroin and meth would now receive far lower penalties than the states they had moved from, as well as much more flexible pretrial options. One of the largest sweeping changes the bill made was a new pretrial practice of allowing certain offenders arrested for Class C felonies that are considered to be low risk to be released on their own recognizance, as in no bail prior to trial. So what's a Class C felony, you ask with bated breath? Well, they include first degree car theft, possession of child porn, possession of Schedule 1A drug, which includes heroin, third-degree assault, first-degree stalking, third-degree sexual assault, second-degree theft, which includes a dollar amount up to $25,000, animal cruelty, and third-degree sex trafficking. I don't know about you, but knowing these types of people were allowed to be back in society on their own after being arrested and often not having to pay any bail makes me feel unsafe. The sex crimes especially make me anxious, not only from a feminist perspective, but as someone that has read detailed explanations of Alaska's incredibly high rate of sex crimes, it freaks me out. They also allowed these same freedoms for some moderate risk offenders with previous charges of failure to appear or parole violations, as well as high-risk offenders charged with nonviolent misdemeanors. Even more shocking is that Class C felons now have the option to receive mere citations for first-time offenses. And this is sort of based on the police officer's discretion. Sometimes they're not even taken into custody. So I don't know how my fellow Anchorage residents feel about this, but this may sound crazy, but I don't want rapists, child porn distributors, and animal abusers to just be free out in public. To be honest, this group of people could be locked up forever, and it would make society a much better place. This category also includes the killing of a canine officer. Just think about that for a second. I know that they later passed another bill to roll back some of these changes, but it seems to be a case of too little too late, judging from the crime stats. I personally don't feel safe in my city really at all anymore. Like I said, we've had cops in my neighborhood five or six times in the last few years, and there's been several incidents of people, active shooters, and there was a SWAT team in my front yard one time about a year and a half ago because of an active shooter on my street. So it's 
pretty damn scary. In just the last few weeks, we've had somebody that was, I'm thinking on meth, that said he was running from a drug cartel that was trying to take asylum at my house. And we ended up having to call the cops and wait for like 45 minutes. It was insane. And there was a car chase that ended in a wreck right in front of my house. Over a year and a half ago, some asshole broke my car window overnight and broke it so badly that I haven't been able to afford to fix it. So I've been driving around with no window ever since. And since somebody had their dog stolen out of their car in a parking lot, that obviously makes me paranoid to take my dog with me on errands. And that's lame. You know I'd have to go full John Wick on somebody if they stole my dog, but I'm kind of tired and I'd rather not have to do that. I would love to hear from some locals about how crime has affected you personally in this apocalyptic times we're having. I love hearing from listeners, obviously, and especially locals, because they obviously have the same personal connection to a lot of these stories as I do. And I'm not trying to scare anybody with these statistics. I'm just hoping others are as angry as I am about our beautiful city becoming inundated with drug dealers, car thieves, and murderers. Because as a result of all of this stuff, drug problems and a growing gang population, the last two years have been off the charts for homicide rates. I've discussed this before, but here's just a brief refresher. I found a comparison between around 70 or so U.S. cities homicide rates per 100,000 people, and Anchorage is number 35 with 12 murders per 100,000. We're higher than Las Vegas, LA, and our number is nearly four times higher than that of New York. Something has to change or this trend will continue. Citizens need to be angry and demand change, and law enforcement needs to get their shit together and realize that certain people don't deserve second chances. Law-abiding citizens are being endangered by criminals, and it's absurd. So reach out to me, locals, and I look forward to hearing from you. Now I'll get off my soapbox and get back into the Kirby Anthony case. When we last left off, we were just about to start the trial. The trial kicked off in May of 1998, and Kirby had some defense attorneys, but he would also be acting as his own co-counsel. One of the first witnesses was Paul Chapman, who described the morning that he found the bodies and the jury heard parts of Paul's chilling 911 call, which was incredibly hard to understand because Cheryl was in the background wailing with a broken heart. Then, a young babysitter of the Newman children came onto the stand and told of how she had witnessed Anthony going into the Newman's apartment with his own key that he had acquired without anyone's knowledge. Even though he and Debbie had stayed with the Newmans for a while, Nancy felt really uncomfortable around Kirby, and so they never gave them their own key so that the Newmans could make sure they were only let into the apartment when Nancy and John were home. Then an FBI agent went on the stand and described how hundreds of hairs found at the scene had been used in evidence and how they were able to compare them to individuals. 
Many of Anthony's pubic hairs were found throughout the apartment and in the bedrooms. This was important evidence, especially considering the fact that the Newman's babysitter had testified that the day before the murders, she had helped Nancy clean the apartment, including vacuuming everything. Tellingly, there had also been a pubic hair of Anthony's found on a washcloth in the bathroom sink, where it looked as though someone had tried to clean up after the murders. And before you say, but hair forensic evidence is not 100%, well, he also had pubic lice at the time, as did the hairs that they found. A few days into the trial, it was reported that Anthony had made some sort of sarcastic comment to Cheryl Chapman as she walked past the defense table. No one else seemed to have heard exactly what he said, but Chapman had no qualms about voicing her thoughts on it. She told the media that if Anthony was acquitted, she would kill him herself. Best aunt ever. After that, she was forced to view the rest of the trial from a separate room equipped with a speaker so that she could hear what was going on. Anthony had been unable to stay out of trouble, even behind bars. This was the entire year before the trial, and even during the trial. He got in several fights, and during the trial, he beat and kicked another inmate so intensely that the victim ended up partially blind. That fight was the seventh he had been involved in in less than 10 months. He also had several other infractions, and while many of the fights were incited by the other prisoners calling him a baby killer, he wasn't really helping his image by demonstrating so much violence. Blonde-haired, blue-eyed Anthony also had no problem letting loose with incredibly offensive racial slurs, and eventually he was put in solitary for his own protection. The second-to-last prosecution witness was Agent Judson Ray with the FBI. He worked in the Behavioral Science Unit as a profiler, among other things, and had been instrumental in creating the profile of the offender that had so closely matched Anthony. The defense really couldn't have asked for a better expert witness. Other than being part of the early years of criminal profiling, he also had a distinguished military career, had fought in Vietnam, had been a police officer for a decade prior to joining the FBI, and had two master's degrees in counseling and criminal justice. He had been involved in thousands of cases, including the Green River Killer investigation and the Atlanta Child Murders investigation and prosecution. Somewhere in there, he'd also been a professor. This guy's kind of my hero now, and he was the perfect witness for this moment, which was the first time FBI behavioral analysis was ever used during a trial not just in Alaska, but in the entire U.S. He was on the stand primarily to demonstrate that an individual who had committed a crime of this nature would possibly or even likely be sort of deflated and mellow afterward. The people whom Anthony had hung out with on the afternoon of the murders had stated he seemed calm and tired. With criminal behavior profiling being so new, prosecution wanted the jury to understand that it was possible for someone to go off the deep end and commit these horrible crimes, but then seem totally normal once they've expended all of that energy. Ray's testimony was short, but historic, and certainly helpful to the prosecution. 
The last prosecution witness would be the most heartbreaking. It was John Newman, a man whose entire life had been stolen from him by his own flesh and blood. Questioning with him did not get very deep as he was barely able to hold himself together on the stand. He mostly verified some basic information and then the prosecution rested. His demeanor and the haunted look in his eyes had been worth much more than the basic questions that he answered. Now it was the defense's turn to call witnesses. They had a few, but none that really had any compelling information to add. And finally, against his attorney's advice, Anthony was just egotistical enough to insist on taking the stand, assuming that he could convince the jury of his innocence. Now this has been a grim case, but this part's actually hilarious. So knowing of Anthony's racist tendencies, Judson Ray, who had stuck around for the rest of the trial, even though he didn't have to, made sure that he and Anthony's ex-girlfriend, Debbie, were sitting next to each other within Anthony's line of sight. Ray was African-American and knew that this would likely make Anthony angry or at least throw him off kilter. Throughout his time on the stand, Ray and Debbie sat very close together and did a lot of whispering back and forth. For better or worse, Ray later said that Anthony seemed incredibly anxious on the stand. He had really lost his ever-present swagger. Much of Anthony's testimony, if not all, would completely contradict previous statements made to police. It seemed like he was trying to cover some holes in his story, but he was obviously lying in a lot of them. As he was allowed to continue telling his stories, his confidence was rising, but soon enough it was time for cross-examination. Everyone knows somebody like Kirby Anthony, someone who thinks that they're the smartest guy in the room, regardless of how much evidence there is to the contrary. And on the stand, he was no match for the prosecution. They absolutely tore him and his various stories apart. One important aspect of the case was Anthony's possession of the Newman's camera, which had been stolen from the apartment during the crimes. He was now claiming that Nancy had lent it to him before the murders because he was big into photography. The prosecutor brought the Newman's camera to the defendant while he was on the stand and asked him several questions which would be easy if you'd ever actually used that type of camera. And he had obviously no idea about any of the settings or really the basic fundamentals of working a 35mm camera. He claimed that he had borrowed it because he was really into photography, but maybe he meant Polaroids because he'd obviously never used this or any other camera of that type before. Now, Anthony had consistently tried to present himself as a broken-hearted family member unduly accused. But if anyone had believed it at all, the next evidence would probably have changed their minds. He had written many letters to friends and family members from behind bars while awaiting trial, and in these letters, he revealed his true violent nature. He spoke of his desire to beat up different friends and family members for various reasons, he also revealed some knowledge regarding aspects of the crime that had not been discussed anywhere in the media coverage. 
After thoroughly outwitting Anthony, the prosecution was done with questions, the defense rested, and all that was left was closing statements. And this is where the trial would get really interesting. So first, the prosecution spent their closing statement describing the timeline of the crime from beginning to end, including only small amounts of conjecture, and explained how every piece of evidence in the apartment had led to Anthony being the only possible perpetrator. There was a mountain of physical evidence against him and a second mountain of circumstantial evidence. And when it came time for the defense to deliver their closing statement, everyone was shocked when Anthony himself stood up to address the courtroom. His personalized closing statement was three hours of barely coherent nonsense. It seemed as though he hadn't even written it ahead of time and was sort of going off the cuff. But he was incapable of forming basic sentences and it was extremely hard for those listening to even try to understand what points he was trying to make. You know when like a toddler starts telling you a meaningless, nonsensical story? Well imagine that for three hours from a grown man, and you can't leave. Once he was finally done talking, his defense attorney took the stand and attempted to inject some reasonable doubt into the case. He brought up a few of the other people that had been persons of interest at the beginning of the case, and how they had never truly been ruled out, but that the state had decided Anthony did it and stopped investigating the other men. He also reminded them of one of the most compelling pieces of defense evidence. When she was murdered, Nancy Newman had a blood alcohol level that was nearing the legal driving level at the time of 0.10. Based on the recollection of the people she'd hung out with the night before, she'd likely only had five drinks, maybe, at the most, and had not been noticeably drunk. Based on the rate of which alcohol is digested in the body, the defense argued that had Nancy been murdered around 9 or 10 a.m., she should not have had any detectable alcohol in her system. They argued that it was more likely she had been murdered on Friday night, not long after going to bed, and that it couldn't have been Anthony since he had an alibi for that whole night. An alibi which, let me remind you, was doing cocaine with a bunch of people. Now, I'm not sure what to make of that specific bit of evidence, but based on the other evidence at the crime scene, it seems pretty obvious it was just after breakfast that they were murdered. The defense also made a quintessentially 80s statement by asserting that perhaps these murders have been done for some occult reason. This was based on a statement from a psychic slash resident at a local psych ward who had evidently predicted the murders and said that they were going to be related to satanic ritual. But that's beyond flimsy and I'm amazed that they even brought it up. Finally, the defense wrapped up their statement and the jury went out for deliberation on June 2nd. They were done deliberating by end of the day on June 3rd, but since it was a Friday, the verdict would be withheld until Monday. So Monday, June 6, 1988 came around 
The courtroom was jam-packed with spectators, eager to see Anthony get what was coming to him. Suffice it to say, I don't think he had many, if any, people on his side at this point. The courtroom erupted in cheers when it was revealed that Anthony had been found guilty on all seven charges against him, including first-degree murder, sexual assault, and kidnapping. That stems from the uh, use of restraints during the murders. His sentencing was held in October, and though he'd had several months more to think about his crimes, at his sentencing, he showed absolutely no remorse, and he no longer was trying to pretend to even be a decent human being. He would not stop running his mouth off at the judge, the prosecutor, and his own defense lawyer. He was sentenced to three consecutive life sentences and several more decades behind bars for the sexual assault charges and kidnapping for a total of around 357 years. Now, we've never had the death penalty in Alaska, but these sentences were about as close as one could get. Now, if he was immortal, he might have had the opportunity for parole around 120 years in, but he's going to die in prison, as he deserves to do so. And as for his other crimes, which are likely, the verdict is out. While behind bars, he did tell a fellow inmate many details about the murder of a man by the car wash where he had worked, details that had not been revealed in the media. The inmate told the police, who recognized this fact that he knew things that only the killer would know. And there also had been a young Native Alaskan woman murdered whose crime scene was eerily similar to the Newman's. Ultimately, they decided not to pursue these cases because he was already going to rot away behind bars. Which is really a shame for their families because now they don't get justice, but I digress. Kirby is still hanging out in Alaska prison. It appears that he's involved with some sort of hobby shop program that makes crafts for various things, including a few years ago when a local girl lost her legs in a car accident. And apparently this group, including him, was helping raise money to help her out. So that's one tiny little good thing that he's done. But honestly, he would need all 357 years of doing that to even attempt to make up for the horrible shit he did and the lives that he ruined. John Newman ended up moving back to Idaho, and I believe the Chapmans did as well. John was able to later remarry, so I hope that he found some peace. Hard to say if he ever rebuilt any sort of relationship with his sister Peggy, who's Kirby's mother. And that's the end of the Kirby Anthony case. One of the worst crimes to ever happen in Alaska. And it's been 30 years now since the trial concluded. And honestly, I can't think of anything nearly that horrifying that's happened since then. And that includes several serial killers. It was just beyond bad. And it really shook up a lot of local residents. 
Much of my research for this story came from a great book called Murder in the Family by Burl Bearer. It's a really good true crime read, so if you want to deep dive into the case on your own, you should check it out. There's also an episode of Forensic Files and the FBI Files about this case, so if you're interested in those aspects, give those a watch. Before I sign off, I just wanted to mention a couple of projects. I started a horror podcast called Death Rattle, which I'm co-hosting with one of the co-hosts from Murder Down Under. So we're fellow murder nerds and horror nerds. So if you want to hear us nerd out over horror, give it a listen. We recently did a very long, mind-numbing discussion about the entire Friday the 13th series, which was a crossover with Good Times, Great Movies. I also am writing a series on the 27 Club for the Dark and Stormy podcast. And the first episode just came out, and it's discussing two amazing musicians that died at age 27, one of whom is one of the most influential musicians of the 20th century that actually died destitute and mostly unknown. And the second one is the original Rolling Stone. So give that a listen. It was one of the most interesting cases or stories I've ever researched. So if you like music history and want to hear about some suspicious deaths, check it out. And there'll be several more episodes in that series written by me. Next time, I will try not to have such a long delay between episodes. And I will try to pick a case next time that's slightly less grim and depressing. But no promises. Until next time, good night and good luck.